I believe the best moat that any business can create is through investing in relationship capital to build those accounts. Because while someone come can come and build a better product reasonably quickly, relationships take a long time to build. And if you invest in them in the right way and you engender the right amount of loyalty, they also take a long time to erode. flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders from around the country. Today, I am thrilled to have a pioneer in the world of hospitality, a man whose name resonates with passion, reinvention, and the art of giving more, Mr. Will Guidara. From transforming Eleven Madison Park into the number one restaurant in the world to writing his book, Unreasonable Hospitality, Will has been a beacon for industry leaders and entrepreneurs alike. Today, we'll dive into the stories and lessons from his journey and discover how his principles transcend hospitality and have the power to transform any business. Hi, Will. Uh, welcome to Flavors Unknown. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to see you. Good to see you as well. Yeah, we we met several months back at uh, Johnson & Wales. And so thank you very much for accepting to be a guest on on the podcast. That means a lot to me. Thank you. No, it's it's a pleasure to, to get some more time together. So yeah. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So I've seen, as I was mentioning to you, I've seen you everywhere on social media. The book is working really well uh, obviously we are talking about you know and like many other people <laughs> you know that have purchased <laughs> it and read it so we are going to have a conversation around it and I, there's like three things that we i want to cover through our conversations that are linked to for me three i would say big ideas that i have taken from that book the first one is uh, embracing uh, radical reinvention that was one big mm. topic for me uh, another one, obviously, is the transformation of everything ordinary into extraordinary experience. And, you know, understand what it means on hospitality, but as well for, you know, other industry. I think it's going to be interesting. And, and the other one that I really love is the, the, the power of giving more and not less. So I think that's those three things that for me really impacted me, uh, you know, when I was reading that book. So I'm sure we are going to talk about other stuff, but I, I will make sure that, that that we cover those three things. So, so first of all, well, what inspired you of like writing this book? Let's start with with this. You know, I'd wanted to write a book for a few years, and I'd kind of started and stopped and started and stopped. The reasons I kept on starting <laughs> were because. I, I just feel like I've been very blessed to have 
had some pretty amazing mentors in my life over the course of my career who have taught me so much. And then also blessed to have had some pretty amazing experiences through which I've learned a lot. And in the same way that a chef writes a cookbook because they have recipes and techniques that they want to share, I felt I had a lot of ideas around service and leadership that I wanted to pass to pass forward. But I also think one of the reasons I kept on starting is my, my dad would always say the best way to to learn is to teach. And sometimes the process of just forcing yourself to put to put clearly articulated words behind ideas that you understand intuitively is one of the best ways to understand those same ideas with more intention. And so almost the process of writing the book and filling it with those ideas uh, allowed me to to understand the ideas even better than I did before I wrote it. The reason I kept on stopping, however, was because I was running a big restaurant company and it just takes time to write a book and I didn't have it. So, you know, I sold the restaurants right before COVID and then was getting ready to launch some new restaurants, but then COVID started. Suddenly I found myself with the space to to finally invest in, in making this happen. And and I'm really grateful for that time and, and really also grateful with the extent to which people are embracing it. You do mention your, you know, your dad and your dad is very present in, in the, in the book. So, and your dad was a part of the military, correct? So I, I just curious about what, how strong was this impact and influence on, on your life? And if you can give maybe some, some specific examples. I mean, my dad is, the most significant impact on my life by far. And I don't, I don't know that it, it was the military specifically that informed the impact it had, he had on me, but, and the military was a big part of his life and, and therefore informed who, who he is. You know, the, I learned so many things from my dad. The book is just filled with quotes from my dad. I've had so many people say, when is your dad going to write a book? And I always say, well, I think I already took all of his good stuff. (laughs) So I'm not sure, (laughs) but, but you know, my dad taught me about integrity. He taught me about intention. He taught me about setting impossible goals and having the work ethic required to achieve them. He taught me about leadership. He taught me about the importance of investing the time to get to know the people you work with and serving them if you ever expect them to serve others or you in return. And as I say a lot of those things out loud, most certainly a lot of that came from his time in the military. You know, he gave me this this little guide that he got at OCS, which stands for Officers Candidate School. When the Vietnam War started, he was certain he was going to get drafted. And if he was going to go into war, he wanted to do it as a leader, not a follower. And so instead of waiting to be drafted, he enrolled in OCS such that he would go to Vietnam, but as an officer. And they gave out these little these little leadership guides filled with the the leadership principles of the army, which haven't changed in decades. And this thing was written 
I don't even remember when it was written, but a long, long, long time ago. And so many of the ideas in there, and I wish I had it in front of me so I could read some of them to you, are, are so relevant today. I would always tell the people on my team that no matter where you go to work, most of the things that you learn will be different at the next place you work. If you work for me, I'm going to teach you our way of serving. I'm going to teach you our way of talking about food. I'm going to teach you our way of greeting. In the kitchen, you'll learn this way of cooking a piece of fish and, and that. And by the way, all of that learning is important. It builds your foundation. But still, the next place you go, it will be different. I believe learning how to lead, like the, the, the best leadership principles are evergreen. Wherever you go, those same rules will apply. And... And I most certainly learned that from my dad, and I'm, I'm almost certain that he learned many of them from his time and in too. service. Okay. So you mentioned that uh, one of the principle of idea that you know he transmitted to you was reaching your like impossible dream, and uh, you know obviously at the beginning of the, the the book and as well you know when I I listened to your presentation at Johnson and Wales, it was this idea that. The inspiration that you you had to elevate, you know, Eleven Madison Park to the level of the Michelin star restaurants and and eventually take it to a number one, you know, in the world of the like the top fifty best restaurant list. So what what was this this the spark, you know, that started this inspiration to reach this impossible dream? Well, the spark in the beginning to to get four stars that was our first goal was to get four stars from the New York Times. I think that was just like what, how, how I was raised. Like, if you're going to do something, just go for the gold, right? Like, the, and, and my dad gave me this paperweight when I was a kid. It said, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And he gave that to me when I was young because he wanted me over the course of my life and in my career to always ask myself that question, whatever the answer was at any given time, to try to do that thing. And he'd always say that far too many people are scared to say their most audacious goal out loud for fear that if they do and don't achieve it, they'll let themselves and those around them down. But he'd always go on to remind me that if you don't have the confidence and conviction to dream big out loud, it's very likely that you'll never achieve your biggest dreams. One of the many ways in which I was blessed to have him as a dad was that he was always very, not concerned, that's the wrong word, but focused on ensuring that I, I had confidence. When my mom got sick and, and became a quadriplegic, he actually moved us to a new house that was closer, that was just like a short walk from where I went to school. Because he was concerned that with my mom being unable to drive me to friends' houses, that I'd always be relying on other people to drive me and that it might make me feel less than. And so instead, he moved us very close to my school and they had to stay on the ground floor because my mom was in a wheelchair. And there was this big room on the second floor that became my room. And my dad encouraged me to use that as the place where everyone would convene so that I never had to rely on other people and wouldn't lose my confidence that way. It's also where I think I learned how good it feels to host others. Because even in high school, I was the guy throwing the party, which at the end of the day is what drew me into the restaurant business. I like to be That's the guy funny. throwing the party. Uh -huh. But you need to be confident 
at least you need to be, you need to have some level of confidence to answer that question honestly. What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And, and listen, let's be real. My time at 11 Madison Park, every time I answered that question honestly, I did actually go on to achieve it. It hasn't always worked out for me like that. It's not possible for anyone. But every time I've answered that question honestly and tried to accomplish that thing uh-huh. and haven't achieved it, I've still ended up far further down the line than I would have had I never tried at all. So that's one thing to, as we know, to motivate ourselves and, and to have this you know, path and, and, and North star that we want to achieve. But how do you motivate the team around you towards the same goal of, for Madison Park, even Madison Park to become the number one restaurant in the world? You know, I think there's a couple answers to that. First, I, I do believe people crave leadership. I know I do and have throughout the course of my life. I think we're all consistently looking around for someone with the confidence and conviction to say, this is where we're going. And when that person is saying, we're going to do extraordinary things, and they talk about that with passion and with the belief of every ounce of their being, that's someone you want to follow, right? Because if you hire driven and passionate people, implicitly, they want to be the best, and they're looking for someone to give them permission to try to be the best. That's one. The second, though, is... While an accolade is a beautiful carrot, a great thing to shoot for that is very black and white, you either achieve it or you don't. It's hard to just inspire people to push towards something if you only focus on the what and not also on the why. It's the moment we ultimately became number one because, yes, we always had our eyes on being number one, but because the entire team understood the impact that we were trying to make in order to become number one. And that idea that, my gosh, if we can reimagine hospitality at such a level that it can only be described as unreasonable, and if in doing that, we can earn that number one spot, imagine how many other people will be inspired to follow suit and do the same thing. And then imagine just the cascading Im- impact of all the people we can make happy. I think you, to get truly a lot of people to get on board and collectively trying to accomplish something extraordinary, there needs to be a feeling of some heightened sense of purpose in trying to accomplish it at all. And sometimes it starts as simple as giving the example and... So I, I'm curious if you can share with us one or two stories about specific instances where unreasonable hospitality made like a difference at Avid Medicine Park. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's endless examples, big and small. Honestly, I tell the big stories often because they're the easiest way to convey the idea but honestly it's a culmination of all the small ones that i think was actually the most transformational one of my great bosses and mentors when i worked for danny meyer was his partner paul bulls bevan who would always say raindrops make oceans you, know, you should always focus on the big things but it's a culmination of all the little things that 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 often stands to 
to be the most impactful. I mean, I think at its core, it started with interrogating the guest experience and understanding as best we could all the individual touch points that went into it. Because only once you've isolated every moment of interaction that a guest has with either you or with someone on your team or with the brand, do you have the ability to elevate every single one of them? And if Two things. The, the the smallest changes to enough things can have an unbelievable impact, but also the smallest enhancement to the least likely touch point in the guest experience can have the biggest impact. In most organizations, everyone's focusing on the same touch points. In restaurants, in the dining room, it's how you greet someone at the door, how you welcome them at the table, how you describe their food course by course throughout their meal. But there are so many other little touch points in the experience that very few people have paused for long enough to consider and and haven't taken the time to, with intention and creativity, think about how to make them a little bit more awesome or a little more connective. I mean, the story that you mentioned in the book and that you share as well at Johnson Wells was obviously now a lot of people know about this story, but you know what, the, the hot dog... And, uh, you know, the couple that was, you know, in New York City and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that you, you know, you happen to like listen or heard you had their conversation, the fact that they were missing, you know, the hot dog experience. That was the one thing that they will not have experienced before leaving the, the city and, and you made it happen. So can, can you just like very shortly describe that situation? <laughs> I think it's, I mean, it's a lovely it one. Well. <laughs> well, and I mean, that was that was kind of the, the revelation moment that led to a lot of other things like that taking place. But yeah, it was a busier than normal lunch service. And I was in the dining room helping the servers. And I was clearing appetizers from a table of four foodies who were on vacation to New York. And it was their last meal on a vacation full of great meals. And they were on their way to the airport after their meal to head back home. And while I was clearing their plates, I overheard them talking about how they had had such an amazing trip and they'd have been to Per Se and Danielle, the Bernadette, the Momofuku, and now I love Madison Park. And the only thing they didn't get to have was a New York City hot dog. And <laughs> it was just one of those light bulb moments where suddenly, like, you like see the matrix a little bit. And as calmly as I could, I walked back into the kitchen, dropped the plates, ran outside, bought a hot dog, ran back inside, somehow convinced the chef to serve it in our fancy restaurant. We cut it up into four pieces, and we had a little swish of ketchup and mustard, and the canel of sauerkraut and relish. And I can only imagine before. the face of the chef when you ask him this <laughs> <laughs> to do this. <laughs> yeah, thought you were crazy, probably. <laughs> those got easier over time once 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 they saw the impact those sure. gestures were having. But yeah, it was it was hard the first time for sure. But that's for um, me the example of you know yeah how to teach by example and to show. The rest of the organization, you know, like a principle and, and, and usually it goes into like a snowball, you know, effect after that. So I, I think this, you well, know, yeah, and then of it's taking the time. Yeah. Then it's taking the time to like understand what, what happened? Like, why did that happen? What did I need to do to make sure that happened? And how can I train my team to do the same? And then going on and giving them the permission to go out in the dining room and start coming up with gestures of their own, which by the way is a precarious situation, right? Especially in the world of fine dining where you spend so much time trying to control every single little detail 
And then you're giving people on your team free reign to come up with their own ideas that so dramatically impact the guest experience. You, you spend so much time trying to control so many things. And then at the very end, you give up so much control. But I think that idea was as powerful as the gestures themselves. And I'll tell stories about what the team did once they were, once they were given permission to, but a former naval captain, David Marquet, famously said that in most organizations, the people at the top have all the authority and none of the information, whereas the people on the front line have all the information and none of the authority. That's especially true in any sort of customer service industry where it's, it's your people on the front line that actually know the people you're serving. And if you can trust them, well, they become more trustworthy. If you give them responsibility, they become more responsible. And if you allow them to imbue the experience with a sense of their own creativity, they'll give so much more of themselves to make the experience great. And so once that hot dog moment came and we started talking about it and ultimately I gave them the permission and the resources to find their own moments. Well, the guests were happier than ever before. I mean, we did so many different things, little things like another guest was there also leaving after his dinner to fly back home, although he was on a business trip and the the server overheard him saying that he forgot to buy his, his daughter, the little stuffed teddy bear with an I heart NY t-shirt on it. So we made it happen. And, and giving this teddy bear to this business traveler, this is like a very grown professional man who started crying when it happened. Another one, a couple came in, they had just gotten married at City Hall, they had a big wedding planned, but but their families fell out of love with one another. It never ended up happening. And so the server committed herself to, over the course of their meal, figuring out what their wedding song would have been. And at the end of their meal, our private dining room was empty that night. They escorted the couple up to the private dining room where the rest of my team was up there dancing. And we basically replicated a wedding reception. And then when the couple walked in on cue, we started playing that song. And we had given them the gift of their their first dance. Now, the thing that's so powerful about this and why I believe that the principles in this book apply to any business, it's kind of the thesis of the book that no matter what you do, you can make the choice to be in the hospitality industry, is that with these principles, it's a win, win, win. The guests are obviously happier. People really don't collect things anymore. They collect experiences. We have a responsibility to give people a story that's good enough to help them relive that experience. Otherwise, is it really an experience worth collecting? But it's also great for the bottom line, right? You have people out there telling these stories. That's the best marketing you could ever have. But it's most importantly, great for the team. But I, th I think this is very important here that, you know, this, because this idea of the power of giving more, not only to your customers, but to your team is a very important principle in your book. But you know, like I know, that many businesses might view the concept of giving more as a financially or logistically challenging. And so how do you address these concerns? Because you said, yes, it's a win-win and it's positive on the bottom line. But people usually, unfortunately, don't think like that. Well, yeah, you need to believe, right? I mean... It depends who I'm talking to and how I make the case. Mm -hmm. Right? Like I could easily argue that any dollar spent on generosity to the people you work with or the people you serve has much more 
impact than any dollar spent on traditional marketing. You have a bunch of, you have an army of people out there telling these stories that will sway people's opinion much more than any Instagram ad or whatever, right? Because people are speaking from the heart when they tell these stories. But I think it's bigger than that. You're right. There's many, many businesses that believe in this idea of what gets measured gets managed. If you Mm -hmm. can't clearly measure the return on an investment, then you don't make it, which in my view is short-sighted. I don't care what you what you sell, whatever the product you sell, someone else could come around who's smarter, more creative, has more money, whatever it is, and build a better product. Everyone's always talking about like how to create the best moat you can around your business. Right? But mo- okay, so like Apple has a pretty good moat, right? It's gonna be hard for someone to compete with Apple. Most businesses through their product alone are going to have a challenging time creating a moat of any significance that that disallows someone else from coming in and stealing their business. I believe the best moat that any business can create is through investing in relationship capital mm-hmm. to build those accounts. Because while someone come can come and build a better product reasonably quickly, relationships take a long time to build. And if you invest in them in the right way and you engender the right amount of loyalty they also take a long time to erode i mean that there's another aspect that you mentioned before as well is that those companies that have been successful and you mentioned apple for instance and you know difficult to compete with it's because those type of company focused on the why and having a purpose versus you know on the what and the product that they are selling so i think that's probably as well another element you know of uh, of that success yeah. So in, in the book, you, you mentioned the rule of 95-5. So can you explain this rule, you know, to our listeners and how it guided your approach, you know, at Eleven Medicine Park? Yeah, it's a good segue because it honestly is, is, is pretty related to the whole idea of relationship capital or at times can be. Yep. Basically, what that meant was 95% of the time I managed my business like a maniac. Every single penny, every single day, no expense was too small to watch like a hawk. And then 5% of the time we spent money foolishly. And I put foolishly in quotes because I actually think that spending does some of the heaviest lifting of all. But it's when you stop cutting back and you start leaning in. All those gestures that I just talked about, teddy bears and hot dogs and filling a private dining room with, with people for a reception or many of the other things we did that cost more money, those fall into the 5%. It also applies with to, to how you lead your team. I managed overtime like a crazy person. I did not believe in overtime that wasn't budgeted into the PL. Like if, if we had if we expected overtime, that was fine. If it was unexpected, we needed to fight hard not to have it. Yet at the same time, come the holidays, I mean we would throw the most ridiculous over the top parties for our team. And we would do that kind of thing at intervals over the course of the year. I think that if you manage your money very wisely 95% of the time and then spend it like crazy 5% of the time, the impact that the 5% has is much greater than if you were to spread out the foolish spending across the entire picture. You need to create these moments of significance. That's what people will remember. 
I always use wine pairings as an example. Whatever a restaurant's budgeted wine cost is, when they're doing pairings, most people say, okay, the pairings cost, let's say, $100, and our wine cost is supposed to be 30%. So we have $30 to spend on these pairings, and we're pouring five glasses. That means we have $6 per glass. Or you could say, no, no, no. For four of the glasses, we're going to spend $3. And then we're going to spend the rest of it on that last glass. And we're smart enough to find great wines that cost $3. But that last glass is going to be a showstopper. And they'll remember those pairings far more than they'll ever remember the alternative. Because that will be the one where they're like, oh, my God. And then we got our lamb at the end of the night. And they poured us the most unbelievable wine. You can't believe it. No one ever pours this wine. You know? That's the whole idea, is to rein it in, and in doing so, earn the ability to really let it fly. So, what I love in your book is those obviously principles that you have and that you are sharing that you know connects to and it comes from hospitality could be applied to any industry. So, in that rule of ninety-five-five, and I know that you have been, you know. In contact with other type of businesses, and since you know the book is out, so how how can you apply that nine to five in other industry outside of hospitality? And the thing is, in many industries, they have the ninety five covered, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it's just about working in the five, and that goes back kind of to your last question: How do you convince people to spend the five? Mm-hmm. And so I'd give the same answers there, but if you're selling food, right? If you're in the business of selling food to to businesses to resell, right? Obviously, you're going to make sure that you're running your business really, really carefully and you're not leaving any money on the table and you're giving the people that you're serving good prices, but you're making money and you're watching all your expenses and all that stuff. And, And then there's no reason why come truffle season, you shouldn't just be dropping off a truffle for each one of the owners to take home and cook for their wife. You know, like that will be the thing that they remember. And by the way, over the, in June, they'll still remember that. And they'll, when faced with a decision on who to buy something from, they're going to bring it back to you. (laughs) Now, the reason I say 95.5, as opposed to just talking about the 5% is because it's still business. And if you're not managing your business well enough, you can't afford to do the 5%. And so it really requires both sides of it. Yeah. And and it is obviously connected to, you know, the employees and the staff that you have for the team. So what's your approach uh, to recruiting and, and retaining the kind of staff who can deliver this unreasonable hospitality? Well, I think the retaining is the easier part because if you create a culture like this mm-hmm. where... You're really giving people empowerment and agency, and they're not just serving plates of food that someone else created, but rather they're imbuing the experience with a piece of themselves. That just makes the work much more fulfilling. If you're giving your gift, if you're giving your team the gift of giving other people gifts, that is energizing. I mean, there's nothing to me more energizing than seeing the look on someone else's face when they receive a gift you're responsible for giving them. Have you even experienced a resistance, some of the employees that you have? I mean... Sometimes people need, sometimes people will say, well, I'm just not that creative. Like I I can't come up with these ideas, but I think everyone's creative. And sometimes you just need to work with someone to help them find their first idea. And 
the moment you feel that the first time, I mean, even the most bitter person can't help but smile when they make someone else smile. Mm-hmm. Then maybe they try to hide it to maintain whatever their image oh, is sure. that they're trying yeah. to portray yeah. to the world. But and I think that feeling is addictive and you want more of it. And so few organizations offer that up that when you do, retention is less the issue. Recruitment, I mean, it's not dissimilar. You have your team out there telling these stories. Other people want to be a part of it. My whole thing is, listen, when I was coming up, some of the people I respected and admired the most in my industry would say, you hire for hospitality, you train excellence, implying that people are either hospitable or they're not, hire the ones that are, and then teach them how to be great. Mm-hmm. And I disagree with that. I think everyone has hospitality in them. Everyone has kindness in them. It's just about encouraging it out. And I don't know that it's possible to be hospitable unless you know first what how good it feels to receive hospitality or perhaps even more so how good it feels to give it. Every interview I would do, I'd just have a conversation with the person. I never walked in with a script. I just wanted to get to know them, who they are, mm-hmm. what their deal is, what do they want out of life and see if they were optimistic. Do they have integrity? Are they someone I want to spend time with? And if all those things are true, we can teach them the rest. Uh, let's switch to another uh, big idea for me from the book. And I would like, if you don't mind, that you explain it a little bit. This, the idea of embracing radical reinvention. So I thought that was really something interesting in the, in the book and, and how you initiated it, obviously, in 11 Medicine Park. And, you know, I just wanted to hear from you how the staff and the customers, you know, reacted to it. <laughs> I mean, change is hard for people, for sure. But I will also believe it's necessary. Listen, I was 24 when I got to 11 Madison Park and a lot older than that when I sold it. <laughs> and over those years, I changed a lot. And I think for something to feel, for something to be truly great, it needs to be an authentic expression of the people behind it. And therefore, as I grew, as we all grew together, so needed the restaurant to grow as well. As I changed, the restaurant needed a change as well. And so I, I, I do believe that you need to embrace change and be open to change with the caveat that you should never change for the sake of change. You don't change just because you want to change. You need to change because you're moving towards something. Getting people on board with change can be tricky. I mean, there's an entire book called who moved my cheese, right? About like, which I, and I, and I get that when you are not the person making the decision about the change, it can sometimes feel like it's happening to you. Unless the person who makes that decision takes the time to explain why they're making it. I think so often, whether it's why you're making a change, why a rule exists, why you're doing anything. If you really want to get people on board with it, you need to explain to them not just what you're doing, but why you've made the decision to do it, why it will best serve the organization and by definition them as well. And even so, it's unrealistic to expect that people won't struggle with it because it's part of our human condition. We get into a routine and there's comfort in it. And once that's taken away from you, it's inherently uncomfortable. But 
I believe growth happens outside of your comfort zone. And so if you and your entire team are too comfortable for too long, you implicitly stop growing at least as much as you otherwise would be. So do you have an example, you know, making those radical reinvention and 11 Medicine Park that, you know, contributed to the transformation? I mean, endless examples. We've changed constantly. I, mean, I think one of the biggest ones was we were, I mean, the fifth best restaurant in the world and we were serving a 14-course menu and it was getting rave reviews. And then I had dinner there one night and I believe in the sanctity of the table. I think the table's a really precious place. It's one of the last places on earth that if approached correctly can invite people to come together and genuinely connect. I believe like the dinner table is one of the places where a couple has gotten distracted by life and work and kids and has really stopped communicating in the right restaurant where they've created the conditions for connection at that table. Those people might forget their phones or even on them and actually lean in and re-engage for the first time in a long time. And so I believe I mean, I, this is my belief system about restaurants generally, that the food, the service, the decor, they're simply ingredients in the recipe of human connection, and that connection happens at the table. And yet, I went into our restaurant, and so think about it. Let's say, I forget, let's say it was 15 courses at that point. For every course, they're marking you with silverware, and they're dropping your plate. Now, drop, marking you with silverware, one putting down the wine glass for the pairing, two, pouring the wine, three, now dropping the plate and explaining the food, four, and then coming over to make sure everything's okay, five, and then coming over to clear it, six, then coming over to crumb the table, seven, and then doing it all over again, 15 times. So that's over a hundred interruptions. So we're creating this beautiful place where people can reconnect with one another and then we're interrupting them over a hundred times. And so we changed it. We cut the menu in half. And every other restaurant that we were competing with at that point was serving 15 course menus. It was almost like established that you could not be number one in the world if you weren't. And we went in a different direction. That was radical. It doesn't seem radical. If you're not in the world of fine dining. Sure. And I say, we only served seven courses. Some people listening to this would be like, okay, who cares? But that was radical. But it was done for the right reason. And you still have, with seven courses, more a little bit more than 14 times where you have an opportunity to interact with your customer as well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And, and build, you know, these connections and experiences, you know, for, for them. So. And if you can't build that in over seven courses, then... Sure. That's a user issue, not a systems issue. So you have spoken, you know, in, in the book about the power of strong, building strong relationship and partnership between different aspects of the business. And obviously, when you are in hospitality, you think about the two aspects of, um, you know, the kitchen and the dining room. So can you elaborate a little bit of practical steps that you took to foster this relationship between, you know, those two? There's not like an easy one-two on this. I think it really requires people making the choice to establish a practice of empathy. I think it's so easy, no matter what you do, to 
focus on why your job is harder and why the other people have it better. Right. And that's mm-hmm. like always sure. the, the best way to end up in a scenario where no one wants to get along because everyone thinks that they're the ones doing all the work. Right. That's the, that's a path to disaster. I think it's empathy. I think it's embracing tension. It's recognizing the idea that part of the human condition is that in moments of tension, we have this tendency to lean away. And if there is tension in the workplace, it's often for the most beautiful reason. It's that maybe you're lucky enough to be surrounded by other people who are similar to you and you all want to be the best, but because we're human beings, we're never going to agree on the right way to become the best. And when people agree on wanting to be the best and disagree on how to get there, there's going to be tension and Mm -hmm. that should be celebrated because it means you work alongside passionate people, which not that many people can claim. And then in those moments, season the opportunity to, but to figure out together what right looks like for the business. So I think like, creating a practice of empathy, reminding yourself to try to see the world through the other people's eyes and, and then embracing the tension when it comes about, because it always represents an opportunity for growth, both for the business and for yourself as an individual. And so if you are looking back now at the time spent and the many years at 11 Madison park, is there's anything that uh, you would have done differently. Oh, a million things. But I have an optimist memory. Optimist memory means you only remember the good stuff. <laughs> and by the way, and I think that's an important thing. And I would be much less entrepreneurial if I remembered all the mistakes with too much accuracy because <laughs> then, like, the, the beautiful nature of an entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial spirit is that ongoing and you keep on trying stuff and. Yeah. So I'm looking at the time. So we've been talking for 45 minutes already. So uh, let me switch to to rapid fire questions. So, which I feel like you need a sound? You need like a sound effect right before you go into rapid fire. I will. I have a jingle. I have a jingle. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll do that. Which writers or book have greatly influenced your life and, and why? For different reasons. I love Simon Sinek and his books. I love Dan Coyle and The Culture Code. Those are like the business books I'm drawn to. I've always loved Hemingway. I love Anne Rand. That's mm-hmm. the other side of things. And I now have two kids. And my oldest is two and a half years old. And so recently for the first time I read, or for the first time since I, you know, remember, Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Which if anyone has not read, Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss as an adult, I cannot encourage that book more. Why? The grace it gives someone I mean, everything I was saying before about like dreaming really big and then sometimes falling short and that's okay. I mean, the book is, it takes seven minutes to read. 
So I, I shouldn't have to pitch it too hard. Anyone who like just <laughs> just you are correct. I, I, like <laughs> it's important. Like I don't want to give it away. I think it'll actually touch people in different ways. It's 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 a it's a really cool read if you're in any moment of any amount of transition in your life. I think it helps give you either comfort or clarity. Okay. So thinking about your uh, personal uh, life and interaction with uh, with others in your personal life, family or friends, how how do you incorporate the principles of uh, unreasonable hospitality? I mean, constantly. By the way, it's easier to do at work than it is in life. Because at work, it's part of your job, right? Uh-huh. In life. But the extent to which you embody it in life, actually, that that's more of a a barometer and defining who you are. I think it, it's the smallest things. Like how present are you when you're spending time with your wife or your kids or your friends? Presence, I think, is one of the most hospitable things you can give someone. How intentional are you when you gather groups of people together? And How much do you bring creativity to the idea of ensuring that people leave a night spent together feeling more connected to one another than they did going into it? How generous are you? How thoughtful are you in the way that you give gifts? Mm -hmm. Are you buying a gift for someone to show them what you can afford to buy them? Or are you buying them a gift to show them how... They mean to much you yeah. cared to yeah. like listen to them and then do something with what you've heard and bringing authenticity in the gesture i guess yeah do you have an example of you know being in maybe a restaurant or a, a, another commercial venue where you experienced recently something that you said oh wow that's a great example of unreasonable hospitality oh all the time One that's really fun is I went to this restaurant, Chisiyama, one of Danny Meyer's restaurants mm-hmm. not too long ago, and I brought my wife, and we went and met another couple. And not too long before that, I had posted a picture of my my new son. My daughter's name is Frankie. My son's name is Sonny. And it was like a picture of my wife holding my son, and you could see kind of the back of his head. And I said, I was introducing Sonny Gadera. And then at the end, I kind of just told a joke and which maybe won't ultimately one day end up being a joke, but about how I named them because one day I'm going to open an Italian-American restaurant called Frankie and Sonny's. Okay. And at the end of the meal at Chisiyama, they gave me a gift bag and I opened it up and it was a giant jar of marinara sauce with this beautiful label. Frankie and Sonny is oh, like, wow. they almost made like a restaurant label sure. as if this was the tomato sauce from that restaurant. It was really cool. Absolutely. Very thoughtful. So what's what's next for you? I mean, at the moment, you are doing the book tour, obviously, and it's doing really well. So congrats. Thank you. So yeah, what's the, what's the next um, project that you are focusing on? If you can, um, we're if getting you can closer. share. No, 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 no. We're, uh, we're, I'm, not, I'm not ready to share, not because I'm hiding anything, but just because I'm enjoying this season. And using it as a way to really unpack where it is I want to run to next. So, 2024? Or even before that? No. <laughs> I'm not doing that game with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very genuine question. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. There's an, like an investigative reporter. That was very impressive. <laughs> there's any other book in, in your, you know, pipeline of projects? I, w- I will write another book at some yeah. point, for sure. Very good. Hey, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure. This was a lovely conversation. I appreciate you having me on. I really love my conversation with Will Guidara from understanding the rules of 95.5 and embracing radical reinvention to discovering how every industry is a service industry at its core. Will has truly opened our eyes to the potential of unreasonable hospitality. His commitment to elevating experiences, not just for guests, but for his team as well, serves as a testament to the profound impact of giving more. As we wrap up, I urge all listeners to buy a copy of Will Guidara's book, Unreasonable Hospitality, and to reflect on how we can integrate these principles into our businesses and daily lives. Thank you for joining us on Flavors Unknown. And until next time, keep seeking those flavors that challenge and delight. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.